please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. As you know, we are continuing our way through the Psalms. We've been looking at selected Psalms, sort of the highlights of the Psalter. Last week we looked at Psalm 23, and today we're looking at uh, the very next Psalm, Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24 is a significant Psalm. It's a a comforting Psalm. It's a Psalm that really speaks uh, to worship, uh, to moments such uh, such as these. Psalm 24. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Uh, Selah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, why do we do in worship the things that we do? Why do we do in corporate worship the things that we do? The church today exists in in the free market. Now, in one sense, this is a good thing. (laughs) This means that we have religious freedom. We have the right to choose our religion. We have the right to choose what type of church we want to worship at. However, there is a negative side to this as well. Very often, in a context like this, the church can easily become just another product that we consume in a consumeristic culture. Based on one's cultural tastes, one's interests, one's hobbies, one's age or generation, there probably is a church that is seeking to uh, appeal directly to you and your taste, your individuality, and your uh, um, identity. Now, there are many categories that we use to think through styles in worship, traditional and contemporary, high church and low church, um, high culture and low culture. And it can almost feel as if what we do in worship is just a matter of taste. It's a matter of preference. It's like going to the store and 
and, and picking out some clothes, a new outfit, or, 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 or buying a new vehicle. Now, of course, Scripture does not give us a church order. It does not give us a liturgy. It does not give us an order of worship. But Scripture does give us principles. Principles that are to guide our times of corporate worship. And so the reason why we do what we do in corporate worship is not because we, our taste is just to be a traditional, stuffy, high church congregation. We do what we do in a principled fashion. And these principles come from the truth of God's word. Well, Psalm 24 is really a psalm about worship. Uh, this psalm has sometimes been referred to as a gate or professional, uh, processional, excuse me, processional uh, liturgy. This psalm was used throughout Israel's history when pilgrims and worshipers would come to the temple in Jerusalem uh, to worship their God, to offer sacrifices. And as they would approach the temple, they would recite Psalm 24. And this psalm would have been recited in a call and response fashion, similar to our liturgy. There are times in our liturgy where I speak, and then there are times in our liturgy where you as a congregation respond. Or boys and girls in our catechism service, I'll at times ask you a question and you'll respond with the answer. This is how this psalm functioned as these worshipers would uh, process to the temple. A priest, a gatekeeper, would, would shout out, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the worshipers would respond, He who has a clean heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Now we know that the temple in the Old Covenant was all about the presence of God, and thus it was the center of Israel's worship. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 24, says that what the psalmist, what David here says in regard to the temple, can be applied for us as New Covenant Christians in relation to the government and worship of the church. And so this psalm is really a psalm about worship. And for us as New Covenant Christians, as we read this psalm, we can make some very helpful applications to our worship together on the Lord's Day. So what I'd like us to do as we consider this psalm is I'd like us to, to, to focus upon three principles. Three principles that this psalm brings out that should guide our corporate worship services. And so the first principle that we see here in this psalm is the principle of the greatness of God. The greatness of God. So notice how this psalm begins in verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Again, in this processional, someone would, 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 have, would have cried out these, these psalms to begin this, this, this journey, this uh, liturgy to the temple. And these verses are essentially reminding us that our God is the creator God. It's reminding us that our God is a great God, a powerful God, a majestic God. Now, there's a, a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, who speaks a lot about what, what it means to exist within a secular age, what secularism really means. And he defines secularism as essentially existing within a community, a culture, and a nation in which there are options. 
So think about the deepest held convictions that you hold on the most important questions in life. Now imagine that you hold to those convictions while at the same time knowing friends, family members, and neighbors who hold opposite and non-commensurate convictions on those very same issues. And oftentimes these individuals are people that we respect, people who are externally good people, people who are intelligent and educated. And so, in a secular age, we hold to our convictions while at the same time we are metaphorically looking over our back, realizing that there are other options. It inherently breeds doubt. Now, of course, Israel did not exist within a secular age. Rather, they existed in, in the opposite of a secular age. They were in a theocracy. However, they were tempted with the, go the gods of the pagan nations around them. They were tempted with the Canaanite gods. And so verses 1 and 2 are meant to be somewhat polemical. Verse 2 may be a reference to the Canaanite God of the sea. So when we read, For God has founded the world, it, upon the seas, the psalmist here may be saying how God is stronger than all of these other pagan gods that Israel was tempted to worship. But not only that, the psalmist is really essentially saying not, not just that God is stronger than these other gods, but these other gods don't, don't really even exist. There are two categories in, in this life, the creator and the creation, the finite and the infinite, the eternal one and those who exist within time. And the psalmist is calling us to draw our attention here to the creator, uh, to the infinite one, to the one who has no beginning and no end. So when we are called to worship on, on Sundays, in moments like this, we are not merely worshiping Christianity's God, as if we are just one sect among many sects. With our God, other sects have their gods. No, we are worshiping the one and true God, the only God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who has redeemed his people through his Son. This is the one whom we are called to worship. Furthermore, when you receive a call to worship on Sundays, you are being called to lift your minds to the greatness of this God. To lift your minds above the cares of this world to the holiness of our God, to the otherness of our God. We are meant to worship him as he's revealed to us in his word. And so this first principle that is meant to guide our times together on Sundays is the greatness of God. We are called to exalt the greatness of God. This is to, to infuse our singing, our preaching, our teaching, our praying. We worship a great God. And thus this processional began with this declaration from the people of God that we worship the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And oftentimes we begin our own worship services this way. Oftentimes I will say, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, from where does your help come? And you respond by saying, our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That comes from Psalm 124, but that statement from Psalm 124 is really saying the same thing that's recorded for us here in Psalm 24. And that, that way in which we begin our service is a very ancient way uh, um, 
that that was used not only in the middle uh, the Middle Ages, but it also was used in John Calvin's liturgy in Geneva 500 years ago. And so we begin as Psalm 24 begins with a declaration that our God is the Creator God, and we are called to worship Him in His greatness. Well, you'll see that uh, verse three uh, continues this call and response format. So. Uh, one individual, possibly the priest or the gatekeeper, would have called out, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, the hill of the Lord is a reference to Mount Zion. And in the Old Testament, Mount Zion was used almost as a synonym for Jerusalem and for the temple. And so verse 3 is essentially saying, what are the requirements for worshiping God in his temple? Now, Israel knew that the temple was all about God's presence. God dwelt in a special redemptive way in the temple. And there were three main sections to this temple. You had the courtyard, and anybody who was in a pure state could come and worship God in the courtyard. Then you had the holy place, and only priests could enter the holy place. And then you had the most holy place. And the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And in verses 7 through 10, uh, verses 7 through 10 may be a reference to when the Ark of the Covenant uh, was transported from the, the tent to the temple when Solomon dedicated this new temple in the book of Kings. And in that most holy place, only the high priest could enter that place, and he but once a year on the Day of Atonement. The temple would have reminded the people that God is holy and they are sinful and thus they cannot just draw near to God in His holy presence whenever they want. If they were to do this in an unclean, impure state, there would be very severe consequences. Now, of course, we know in the New Covenant we do not worship God in an earthly sanctuary. God's presence is not tied to a building or to a structure. Rather, we know that the new covenant temple, the new creation temple, is God's people. Peter tells us that those of us who have the Spirit, we are living bricks that make up this new creation temple. And so, in the new covenant, God's presence is promised to dwell upon us when we are gathered under the oversight of elders to hear the word preached and to partake of the sacraments. This is what Jesus means in Matthew 18, 15, when he says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there, there, I am with you. I've mentioned before that one way you can think of corporate worship is FaceTime in our relationship with God. When you think about your earthly relationships, when you are living a great distance from a loved one, there are many ways in which you can communicate text message, email, letters, but FaceTiming them is really the, the height of communication with someone who lives a great distance from you. And so when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, we can commune with God many, many different ways throughout the week, but corporate worship is like FaceTime with God. It's that special, that special moment when God uh, dwells upon his people and with his people. And so the second principle that we see here in Psalm 24 is that worship is all about the presence of God. It's not just that we are called to exalt the greatness of God, 
but we have the promise that this great God dwells upon and with his people. How then should we conduct ourselves in light of this amazing and extraordinary reality? Well, listen to what the author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 28 and 29. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We are called to revere the presence of God. What we do during our times together should reflect reverent worship. It should invoke awe within our hearts. We are coming in the presence of this great God who has redeemed his people through his son. Well, at this moment, we should be asking ourselves, how can this great God dwell among a sinful people? That's a question that Israel was, was constantly asking during the Old Covenant as God dwelt among them in the temple. This psalm begins to answer that very question. Notice how this psalm responds to the questions posed in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? That is to say, who shall draw near to God in his temple? He who has clean hands in a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. In order to enter God's presence in the Old Covenant, moral blamelessness was required. The average Israelite knew that they could not dwell in that most holy place. The average priest knew they could not dwell in that most holy place. Even the high priest knew he could not perpetually dwell in the most holy place of the sanctuary. The temple was a very restricted place because of the sinfulness of the people of God. And we have to remember that the earthly tabernacle was merely a pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. And so if the earthly temple was restricted, how much more restricted is the heavenly temple for a sinful people? We also learned in the Old Covenant that God prescribed this pretty elaborate system of ritual purity. And when you read books like Leviticus, you you learn that there are many non-sinful things that would render one unclean, such as uh, having sex, giving birth, having leprosy, eating forbidden foods, handling dead corpses, whether they be animals or other humans. These things would render you unclean. Now, some of these things were good. Having children and having a family, that's a good thing, but yet it would render one unclean. So why did God prescribe this system of ritual purity? Why did God say that these non-sinful things would render one unclean and therefore unworthy of drawing near to the temple? Well, all of these things that would make one uh, impure fall under one of two big categories. The categories of death and sex. When you think back to Genesis chapter 3, those are some of the two main categories that structure God's curse upon mankind. Remember what God told Eve. In pain you shall bring forth children. The curse was related to childbirth. 
God told Adam and Eve, to dust you shall return. Part of the curse involved death, physical and spiritual death. And so this system of ritual purity and impurity was meant to teach Israel that impurity did not come from outside of them, but it came from within them. It also meant to teach them that in order to dwell in God's presence, someone would need to come to reverse the curse. And they couldn't do it. So as Israel recited and read Psalm 24 in their own original context, what it did is it increased anticipation, expectation for that Messiah to come, who would be the only one who, who fits the bill of verse 4. And this is exactly what we learn when we come to the New Testament. Jesus was the only one who had clean hands. Jesus was the only one who had a pure heart. Jesus is the only one who did not lift up his soul to that which is false. Jesus is the only one who did not swear deceitfully. And thus Jesus is the only one who, according to verse 3, was able to ascend the hill of the Lord. The only one who was able to stand on his own merits in God's holy presence. When did Jesus ascend the hill of the Lord? Not when he was teaching in the temple towards the end of his life. Jesus ascended the hill of the Lord in his ascension. Remember, the earthly tabernacle is patterned off the heavenly tabernacle. And so Jesus was able to ascend to God's heavenly tabernacle in heaven. Jesus was able to stand in God's heavenly holy of holies. And so when we read that the curtain of the tabernacle was torn in two when Jesus died, what this teaches us is that now through the flesh of Christ, we have access not to an earthly sanctuary uh, somewhere in Palestine, but we have access to God in his heavenly holy of holies through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And so when we enter God's presence in worship, we are to see the necessity of Christ. That's that third principle that we see here in this psalm, the necessity of Christ. The only reason why we can respond to God's call to worship is because of Christ. The only reason why we can offer our prayers before God is because we have a faithful mediator and intercessor who lives at the right hand of God to make intercession for us, his people. The only reason why we can sing and make a joyful noise to our God is because we sing in the name of Christ. It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus exhorts us as Christians to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in the name of Jesus Christ. Even our singing is to take on an explicitly Christ-centered flavor. Our preaching and teaching is to center upon the person and work of Jesus Christ as Jesus is preaching, centered upon his own person and work as we see in Luke 24. And thus, this is arguably the most foundational principle that should guide our corporate worship services. Christ and him crucified. So yes, scripture does not prescribe a detailed order of worship for us. 
Scripture uh, does not provide a, a church order or a church manual that tells us exactly how we are to worship. But Scripture does give us very helpful principles. And here in Psalm 24, the psalmist gives us three very important, relevant principles. In corporate worship, we are called to exalt the greatness of God. We are called to revere the presence of God. And we are called to plead the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ.